Section 1 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 Braden. Three not inconsiderable rivers, the Yare, the Waveney, and the Bure, fed by sundry smaller streams, pour their mingled waters through Yarmouth Haven into the sea. In the course of their meanderings through the lowlands, here and there in the deeper depressions of the valleys, they broaden out into shallow lakes known as the famous broads. At all seasons of the year their waters are fresh, although at long intervals exceedingly high tides carry up the salts perilously near to them. The confluent rivers combine to form on the western side of Yarmouth a large inland lake some miles in extent, known as Braden, the Broadwater of the Saxons, which acts as a natural backwater to Yarmouth Harbour. I have often pictured to myself what a magnificent estuary this water-covered plain must have been in the ages long ago when the Roman galleons sailed up Garienus Ostium to their camp at Borough Castle, signalling, all's well, to the camp at Caister, as their vessels ploughed the sea that then rolled over the site of Yarmouth as the North Sea now sweeps over Scroby Sands. From the stern sheets of the old Moorhen, I can turn my glasses round sighting clearly the hangar at Caister West End, its sandy cliff-line distinctly showing beyond the level of the Bure marshes, and trending away northwest, forming a background for windmills and the brown-tanned sails of the wherries that follow the course of the winding Bure. To the westward, the heights that were lapped by the sea-waves are seen extending beyond Bradwell to Borough Castle, where we lose their outlines in a leafy screen of trees and herbage. In the course of time, an accumulation of alternate layers of moor and silt gradually push back the waters from this great alluvial flat, and the drift sand from the eastward helped in this direction. It is said that at about the time of Edward the Confessor, the sea retreated from the sand at the mouth of the estuary on which Yarmouth now stands. The following paragraph is taken from a manuscript entitled Great Yarmouth, a book of the foundation and antiquity of the said town, etc. Folio 1560 and then there were two channels for ships and fishermen to pass and enter into that arm of the sea for utterance of their fish and merchandises, which were conveyed to diverse parts and places, as well in the county of Norfolk as in the county of Suffolk, by reason that all the whole level of the marshes and fens, which now are betwixt Yarmouth and the city of Norwich, were then all an arm of the sea, entering within the land by the mouth of Heras, 
and this was about the year of our saviour ten forty and long before an ancient book which had made use of this much older quotation very concisely disposes of any further processes by remarking when this sand became inhabitable and a considerable town formed upon its banks the course of the sea being altered the rivers and marshes settled in the manner we now find them one loves at leisure to linger over the ancient and fascinating records of old yarmouth and follow its vicissitudes also to conjure up in the mind pictures of the slow but certain processes of nature which must have built up its foundations from the sea and unfortunately it is to the latter one must turn in accounting for braden in the form we see it to-day for it seems vain to dig into these old tomes for satisfactory data but one thing is certain that but for the walls or banks enclosing the rivers and braden a few big tides would very speedily turn the lowlands into another although more restricted garrianus ostium and great would be the joy of those who delight to wait on wildfowl which would with a return of the ancient conditions again flock to the watery wastes but this will not happen until the sea breaks through at horsey or thereabouts which i feel convinced must some day befall i am strongly inclined to think that it must have been about the time of the cutting of the first haven in the fourteenth century that the enclosing of these waterways was begun the history of the six havens which were afterwards constructed is one of intense interest the record of the straits the inhabitants were put to their great sacrifices and their indomitable energies makes most entertaining reading whoever raised these mounds made them well although breakages and consequent floods have happened from time to time and even in my own recollection two or three inundations one of them of a very extensive character have occurred through the banks having been broken by stress of heavy tides continual vigilance has to be exercised by the marshmen who attend to the drainage mills and whose place it is to see the weak places are strengthened and the necessary elevation maintained the processes of reclamation must have been slow but they have been exceedingly simple at one time the low level now forming the marshes and braden must have been an immense area of saltings an extensive series of walls continuous zigzagging mounds following the trend of the tides were thrown up above the level of high water the soil that formed them being dug out of what forthwith became deep parallel ditches here two birds were killed with one stone 
for the ditches, locally deeks or dikes, formed natural drains or channels into which the surplus water from the newly made marshes naturally drained. In connection with these, a great number of smaller drains were cut in various directions, extending for miles. Windmills were erected at intervals near the banks of the rivers and of Braden, each of which pumped up the water with a huge wheel that lifted it from the levels to a high-built sluice opening into the waterways. At low tide, the sluice gates were opened and the water escaped. These old mills date back many years. One of them, still in excellent condition, dates, I believe, from 1732. But many of the tower mills have fallen out of use of late years, and only two or three remain to cast their shadows into Braden. Dan Bannam's mill, standing a mile beyond my houseboat, and towering up conspicuously from any point of view, is a good type of the old pump mill. But even this works little when winds are lazy, for there is attached to it an engine that will work more effectually when necessary. Indeed, most of the mills in Broadland give way to steam pumping when an excess of rain has fallen, while many have entirely fallen into disuse. For one good turbine pump will do the work of a dozen windmills. The marshes have naturally settled through this system of drainage. At one time they were part and parcel of the fast diminishing rons or saltings of Braden but now they have become shrunken and solidified to much below their original level. A big tide on Braden is sometimes some feet above the level of the marshes on the inner side of the wall. The wild birds have not appreciated this alteration, for many of the lower forms of life which allured them have been lost or have been much reduced in numbers. Many long stretches of the walls have been faced with huge flints to save erosion. A few, where the tides are sluggish, are fronted with salt-loving herbage. But year by year the flints have been added to, and these need replacing at intervals. Even these will all, in time, be faced with concrete, and at recent mending times, long stretches have already been stuccoed by rough concrete spread over the jagged flints, filling up interstices and making an enduring rampart. The walls are sufficiently wide at the apex to form a tolerable footpath, muddy enough in wintry days and wearisome in summer and autumn when the long, wiry grasses close over the footway but a ramble along them is always an interesting experience, except on ordinary November days, or anything like them, for shelter is out of the question. After rain or heavy dews, the wet grasses soak the boots of the pedestrian. The sea milkwort, Glauks maritima, 
grows in abundance on the inner sides of the walls, and the sea aster, aster tripolium, shoots out of the clay that holds the huge rough flints in place. The sea southernwood, the scurvy grass, and the creeping chenopodiums variegate the banks. A few stretches of stunted reeds, dwarfed by the salinity of the ditches, struggle for existence, growing larger as one nears the borough end, until a little way up the rivers, where fresh water runs longest, they overshadow one's boat by their ten-foot-long stems. The saltings, or rons, that at one time fronted long stretches of the walls, have grown less and less as the years and the waves have rolled by, and there remains but one of any extent, duffels rond, on the narrowest portion of which my old houseboat, Moorhen, rests. The crumbling away of the saltings, added to the silt from the rivers eddying onto the flats, has made Braden grow up fast and surely, and one or two other causes contributing to this, to the Bradeners, disastrous result will be noted in the later chapters. Braden, to my mind, looks charming from any standpoint. I have viewed it with admiration from the parish church steeple, from which one sees it spread like a lagoon of silver. Looking down Braden from Burney Arms, when the full tide is flowing, one sees a noble lake divided, not exactly in the middle, by two long rows of stakes, a larger division on the left. The water shallows abruptly over the flats, as it does on the right of the red-painted guideposts. The others are tarred. Along the channel, between the stakes, glide white-sailed yachts and laden wherries, hulled on the actual pattern of the ships of the old sea-kings, race merrily along, impelled by their huge high-peaked sails. If the wind be free, they make easy work of it. If not fair, they tack smartly from side to side, gaining on each board with more picturesque action. And here and there, like tiny torpedo boats, speed the punts of the eel-babbers and the open boats of the smelters. The variations in cloud and sky are intensified in the waters of Braden, and the lover of the beautiful sees here a never-ending, ever-changing panorama with fine effects. The sunsets, viewed from the townward end, are not surpassed in England. The outlook changes every hour. On fine days, even at low tide, when the flats are bare, amazing colorations, greens, browns, and golden, are seen at dawn and sunset. And at no season are they altogether unlovely. And when the sun has set, and the stars see themselves reflected in the cool depths, when the moon flings her radiance on the rippling water and moist ooze, there is yet something to charm and enthrall one. 
enough has been said of the charms of Braden. Those who would view them at their best should choose the sunnier days, and make sure before starting that the flood tide is making, for everything seems then full of life and beauty. A tide table stands at the foot of the Haven Bridge on the south side, on whose clock-like faces the times of each high water at the bar for the day are noted. Allow one hour later for Braden. A walk to Borough on the five and a half mile zigzag of walls on fine days is interesting, and an examination of the grey ruins of the old Roman walls will repay the journey thither. A good pair of field glasses will interest the stroller as he journeys. The north side of Braden affords quite another aspect. One should make for the toll gate near Vauxhall Station, pay a halfpenny, walk along the new road as far as the second gate beyond, the first half a right-angle turn in the road, cross the two gates, the narrow bit of marsh and the railway, in spite of the notice board, and then ramble on in a westerly direction to Burney Arms. A noon train usually starts for Norwich, passing Burney Arms and setting down passengers if required. It is a fourpenny ride to this one-man railway station, which is separated by two marshes and three gates from Burney Arms, a quaint, cheerless alehouse that draws more than half a barrel per fortnight, and supplies any who ask for them with a jug of coffee and rich sweet cheese and bread, or allows the visitor to munch his own refreshments. A chat with the natives and the smelters one sees here is always a source of interest, and not infrequently of amusement. The walk home is by no means uninteresting or tedious. The huts of the smelters and the wildfowlers dot the monotonous level with bits of colour. There is one Braden picture, framed in a circle of verdure, that always bewitches me. To enjoy a view of it, I start by tram from Southtown Bridge, getting off at the Boundary Road, a mile journey. From here, a three miles walk across the bridle pass and through country lanes, from which glimpses of Braden may be snatched at intervals, finds one on the edge of the old estuary. On reaching Borough Church, a right-angle turn is made downhill, and Burney Arms and the confluence of the rivers Yare and Waveney lie before one. If a wherry or a yacht or two are passing at this moment, a most beautiful picture is presented. A few yards from Borough Church is the Roman well, where one may refresh himself, and the ruins of the camp are but a hundred yards farther on. Pursuing the right turn, one comes to Braden Walls, along which one may ramble back to Yarmouth. Should any ornithologist seek to get afloat on Braden, there are several punters, Bradeners, or naturel, 
who may be found near their shelter on the suspension bridge quay or the watcher may be arranged with while a friend of mine named halls who keeps a motor-boat moored at cobham is ever ready to show Braden under pleasant and agreeable conditions end of section one